Mac Power Users, episode 462, Jason Snell Returns. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hello, David. Hello, Katie. Um, you know, I we were winding down and we were just talking to our good friend, Jason Snell, who... Uh, offline, but is now online with us. So help, welcome back to the show, Jason. Hello. It's good to be back. I return again. You can't get rid of me. No, we can't. Um, and I, well, first off, I want to say thank you very much for coming because I know it, uh, you're making the rounds on kind of the holiday shows this time of year. I heard you talking about that on Upgrade this last week, I think. Yeah, I'm on a lot of podcasts at the end of the year. I feel like everybody realizes the last minute that they haven't fulfilled their quota of me by the end of the year. And so they get me in under the wire. But I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's been two years since we had you on Mac Power Users. So I feel like we've really, uh, we, we're snellless for too long. And I'm not traveling for the holidays this year at all. So it's super convenient for me because, you know, I don't have to schedule around going away for a week or two. So that's nice. Well, we are having you on, not just because it's the end of the year and we're looking to fill our Jason Snell quota, but, <laughs> but that is always a good reason to have you on the show. Um, you know, I am, I'm winding down kind of my, my gig here, and, and David told me to go through and make a list of everybody that I wanted to have on the show, and they were unavailable. So um, I'm just kidding. Excellent. <laughs> um, Excellent. That's, that's what I said to David, is so those people turned you down, huh? Well, okay, sure. I'll be on. <laughs> no, but I, I have very fond memories. The, uh, the, I will tell you the first time... And I think I told this to David after after we recorded the show that I really thought that the Mac Power users might be a thing and that we might have made it was after Jason Snell appeared on the show. That was a that was a big deal for me. And um, all these years later, to uh, kind of be considered in the realm of a colleague with you on on Relay uh, has has been really one of the uh, the the great highlights of of my podcasting career so i i wanted to speak to you one more time before before i said goodbye well yeah, that's very kind of you to say it is an honor to be here um i guess i guess i first recorded uh with you in 2010 so it's been a long time that was episode 29 wow yes. yeah, i will well. also say i have one little bit of um of uh, trivia which is i now work in my garage and uh, I I put in a door to my house so I don't have to go outside and there's carpet and there's a space heater and all that. But the very first podcast I ever recorded in my garage was an episode of Mac Power Users. So this podcast will always hold a place in my heart because that was that podcast where I said, could I could I do that? Could I work out in my garage? And that that I I was there was no furniture out here. I think I was in like a folding chair <laughs> with a tripod for a microphone stand, but it totally worked. And now I do every podcast I do, and I write all my articles and everything right here. So thank you for giving me a start. Yeah. So we christened your garage for you. That's great. We did mm -hmm. wonderful. I think now we need to get a Mac Power User sticker in Jason's garage sometime. Somehow, I don't know. Be like, this is the spot where it happened. Just send me one and I'll stick it somewhere. <laughs> All right, I will. Or I, or I was thinking if, if you ever do one of those, uh, if, we, if I ever find myself in your house again, maybe you'll just find one is in the garage. You won't know how it got there. I'm not sure. But I'll send you one. of the. I guess that's easier. Sure. We'll do that. All right. Well, Jason, uh, it has been a couple of years since you've been on the show. And one of the things that you've done, and you've written a lot about it over the last year or so, is you went all in with the new iMac Pro. And we haven't had many guests that are that are driving one of those. And I really wanted to hear uh, what you think about that thing. I, uh, I love it. I love it. It has been a year. I was thinking about that because it shipped at the very end of 
2017, right? Like right under the wire. In fact, I, I keep thinking... Uh, I have to check on like if I write an article or I talk on a podcast about the iMac Pro, did I include it in my best of the year for last year or was it too late and we'd already written or recorded that stuff and I need to mention it now because it, it's it's falling through the cracks. But I love it. I bought the I bought the base model, which was probably the most expensive computer that I've ever bought for myself because that is, you know, you know, we have the 5K iMac. This is this is the real 5K iMac because it costs yeah. five thousand dollars. <laughs> yes. But um, it's it's uh, I love it it's great yeah so what what was it that led you to decide on that over just a standard iMac so I had the first generation 5k iMac and I loved it uh, and obviously over the course of a few years um, it had been replaced with some new models that had a better screen and and better processor speeds and uh, the SSD got a lot faster right Apple upgraded all of the internal flash storage stuff to be a lot faster and I I was like oh, I'm okay this is still an incredibly fast powerful computer. It was great. In fact, it's funny, this is the year that um, since the Mac Mini got finally updated this year, when I went out on my own in uh, 2014, I uh, my original plan was to get a Mac Mini, and that was right when Apple replaced the Mac Mini with the ones that um, o- only did two processor cores. They they got rid of the quad core model. Yeah, they downgraded it. Yeah, I was like, what am I what am I going to do? Because I that was what I was going to do is I had an external monitor already on my desk that I attached my MacBook Air to, and I thought, well, I can I'll get a, a fast Mac Mini and I'll do that. And then they killed the fast Mac Mini, and I thought to myself, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I'll just kind of putter along with this MacBook Air. And then they announced the 5K iMac, and I said oh let's do that and and so that was a great system and I, I was really happy with it and when they announced the iMac Pro I thought it's overkill but the more I thought about it and talked to friends of mine who were also considering it the more I kept thinking about um, you know writing articles does not require an iMac Pro but I do a lot of podcasts and um, one of the things I do for the podcast that I do and also that I kind of produce uh, for the incomparable podcast network that I that I run in my spare time, basically, is I do a lot of audio processing um, with some of the podcasts we do. People are on a call playing a, a you know a role playing game or some other kind of game for three hours, two hours, four hours at a time, and there's six people, and they are in all sorts of different audio environments that are noisy. And one of the things I do is I have a, a piece of software called Isotope RX. Uh, standard version, I think seven is what I have now. And it is a fancy audio utility that will do things like remove noise and remove background hum and even remove reverb, like room echo, you can remove it. And it's pretty amazing. But it's, as you might expect, very processor intensive. So I thought to myself, all right, um, the faster storage is going to be great because my audio and video files are huge. I've got this super processor intensive audio processing that I would like to go faster um, and also have more RAM in my system because that's good because then the, the loads those giant audio files into memory so that it goes even faster. Lots of reasons to do it. Also, I do video stuff for uh, video versions of a couple of podcasts that I do, like Total Party Kill and some SixColors.com videos that I, I do irregularly. And I thought that you know, it would be nice to have a faster system for that too. But ultimately, I think it was it was the audio stuff that was my primary uh, my primary impetus to finally push it over the edge. Is that that was where I was acting like a true kind of creative professional in the sense of needing that level of power, the amount of power that Apple would want you to have if you were um, writing about the iMac Pro. Like they did, they didn't even want reviewers who are just kind of regular tech reviewers. They wanted 
people who had impressive pro workflows to talk about it and write about it when it came out. And, you know, they didn't want to give me one, but I wanted to buy one. I ended up writing a review anyway, because I do have pro workflows and they are in the audio side. And it has been great for that. Like, not all the software I use is particularly uh, multiprocessor aware. Uh, and that's unfortunate. I get very frustrated when there's a plugin that is just going to sit there using one of the eight cores on my iMac. But um, but the ones where uh, where it uses all eight of them and fills them up and and cranks through a job in minutes instead of like dozens of minutes. Oh, that's when I'm very happy to have an iMac Pro. Yeah. And not only do you get that increased processing speed, it's just really a better computer on the inside. I mean, the, the, the FaceTime camera is better. The, they've got that cool. This is where the T2 showed up. Um, and how is that working out for you? I mean, the T2 is, it was really something brand new with this computer. Yeah, this is the this is the first one to do it, and now we've seen it on other models, right? It's on the Mac Mini, uh, it's on the uh, it's on the uh, MacBook Air, and obviously the MacBook Pros. But this was this was the the desktop model where they're like, "Yep, this is what every Mac is now." Is it's this T two processor? There was the what the T one in the Touch Bar uh, Max, but the T two was in the iMac. So it's uh. It doesn't. It's not really that different. I had to change my boot settings a little bit. Um, fortunately, like I have a boot camp partition, and Windows does has uh, basically it's compatible uh, when with uh, the security stuff that's in the secure boot on the T2. So um, it it knows that my copy of Windows is legitimate and secure and will boot into that too when the rare times that I do that. I don't spend a lot of time over there, but occasionally if there's a game that I want to play, I'll do that. Um, but it basically doesn't get in the way. There are a couple of bugs. There's a hilarious bug where occasionally if I type my password, my login password too fast, it looks like it's rejected it and it blinks a few times as if I'm continuing to type the password and then i can actually literally i can delete the text field and start typing it again and then it just boots the rest of the way so it's it's uh i don't know what's going on there there's some definitely some bugs to be worked out in i guess it's bridge os is the name of it that is booting before mac os boots but um but yeah but generally it's it's great and you mean you mentioned the t2 the uh the cooling i mean it's the same size as the old imac that i used but what they did was they pulled out all of the possibility of having like a spinning disc or anything like that and they rebuilt the cooling system and uh that is the thing that i uh, as a podcaster that i actually appreciate and i forget about now is when my imac was under load in the old days you could it would crank up the fan and you could hear that imac fan and it uh the the imac pro blows a fan almost all the time but you can't hear it it's it's super quiet and uh, that's also pretty great that this, and that's because they built this whole kind of next generation cooling system for it, very much like what they did with the Mac Mini, where rather than shrink the product, they reclaimed all of that space that was used by spinning discs and turned it into a cooling system. It's also got the faster disc controller, which I, I don't know if you noticed that or not. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, those audio files. That's that's one of the things that I actually am really happy about is that if I'm reading many many audio files at once, or I'm doing, uh, you know, exporting audio i'm i'm uh, reading and writing those giant files like a three hour uncompressed audio file is is pretty large it's not as large as if you're working with video but having the additional disk speed over that first generation imac especially it was quite a leap was uh was great 
what is really the main difference for someone who is kind of on the fence going, you know, I'm, I want a, I want an iMac. I, I'm talking about myself really here. So let's just go, <laughs> let's just, let's just disclose that right at the, at the start. You know, I want an iMac because maybe I'm tired of this MacBook Pro sitting on my desk, but I don't know. Do I really need an iMac Pro or could just a, a 5K, not 5K cost, but regular 5K iMac, um, you know, fit, fit the bill for me? When does someone know when they've leaped that? barrier that the the true 5k or the the true uh, iMac Pro would would fit the bill for them as as opposed to just a regular 5k iMac because the 5k iMac is quite a machine in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I would almost say that if you're not sure if you need the iMac Pro, you don't need the iMac Pro because the 5k iMac even the base model is very powerful and then you can you can upgrade it with in terms of RAM and storage and processor and get something that is extremely powerful for uh, quite a bit less than $5,000. So really the, the the iMac Pro is, you know, it's a product for people who know that they can take advantage of the power of it. Otherwise, the 5K iMac is going to be plenty. So really it is, are you using, are there moments where you are able to uh, throw huge amounts of data and processing requests at a whole bunch of cores, and you want them to respond as quickly as possible. And when I'm just sitting here writing articles during the day, um, it is a waste of the power. But when I am processing those um, enormous, you know, hours long audio files and removing the, you know, the sound of people's heating and the echo in their echoey room and all of that, that's when I that's when I know that I'm putting it to use or if I'm encoding a 4K video or something like that. But it's it's in those very specific contexts. Otherwise, yeah, I think you have to go a long way, almost to the point where, yeah, if, you, if you're questioning it, you probably don't need one. You could get a really nice 5K iMac that will do uh, perfectly well. And honestly, for for my purposes, that's that's where I'm leaning. But I know we've gotten that question from a from a lot of other people as as well. Yeah, a lot of times we hear from folks that are doing a lot of video who want them because it does that in, you know Final Cut does that encode using all those cores. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Jason about it is it's not really video that brought Jason in; it, it's the audio processing. But it's the same thing. Isotope is a is a kind of a Final Cut caliber application. And that uses all the cores, right? So yeah, well, it depends on the plugin. So Isotope's a three hundred and fifty dollar. It's like a suite of plugins, and there's an app. Basically, it's uh, audio processing plugins, and some of them are multi-core, and some of them are not. And the thing that boggles my mind is that more of them aren't. But the most important single plugin, which is called Spectral Denoise, is uh, parallelized and will fill up all of my processor cores to the max. And uh, I love it when that happens. But their D-Reverb plugin, which removes the room echo, is not. And it's very frustrating because uh, that takes a long time. And quite frankly, it, it, there's no reason for that. It should be able to chop that job up into pieces and uh, farm them out to the individual cores. And every now and then I write the developer uh, a bit of feedback and I say, you, need, you have pro users, you need to make this parallel. And uh, so I can... I can do this job faster. But uh, yeah, the Spectral Denoise plugin, when that is cranking on a, you know, a really noisy four hour long audio file, um, it is great because I remember how long those used to take. So are there moments that you have now, now that you're used to using the iMac Pro for a year, does it still occasionally catch you off guard with something cool that it does and make you smile? Or have you got it kind of wired down at this point? Yeah, I think I, I think I do. I mean, mostly it's the um, well, like I said, when I'm in that moment where I have like a bunch of giant audio files open and it's um, it's 
the plugins are working on all of them and I'm maxing those cores out. I actually bought iStat menus and put it up in my menu bar just so I can see when it's when the cores are full and cuz it does it, it it makes me very happy when I can fill all of those Xeon cores and I know that it's it's doing the job that I bought it to do. Um, that does make me very happy. But otherwise, it, it is, one of the nice things about it is it basically was a swap out replacement for my existing 5K iMac. Um, it, you know, my desk is no different other than the iMac hanging here is base gray instead of the more silver color. But other than that, it's basically the same as the iMac I had before it. And that's that's kind of nice because I didn't have to change anything in terms of my uh, my workspace at all. In fact, it's a little more convenient because I um, I have my iMac on a, on a mounting arm. I don't have it sit on my desk. I have it on an arm that I can swing around and raise up and lower. And it gives me access to the whole top of my desk. And the regular iMac, you have to order a Visa mount version and it comes with the mounting back and you and, and no foot and that's it it's just it's always like that and the iMac Pro actually comes with a foot and you can pop it off and put on a mounting bracket and mount it and so what that means is in in the end when i do decide to sell this finally i won't have to go and do what i did with my previous iMac when i sold it which is buy a third party visa adapter stand <laughs> monitor stand essentially and put that on my iMac so that I could actually sell it to somebody uh, but th- this time I've got I-, I can see it from here I have the, the the foot of the iMac Pro is up on a shelf and I can I'll just take it down and reattach it and, and then sell it that way yeah that was weird because the the original 5k iMac didn't the original 5k iMac have the ability to take the foot off no, there were there were early iMacs, early iMacs in this uh, this shape, the kind of all in one big screen iMacs did have that feature, and then roundabout, I want to say like 2011, somewhere in there, 2012, they uh, removed that feature and they made it just configured to order, so you could you could buy one, but it was no longer something you could do afterward. Because you used to be able, I did that with an iMac at work once uh, a long time ago. We popped the the foot off of it and put it on a on a, a mounting bracket and then put it on an arm, and that was cool. Um, and you kind of can't do that now, but with the iMac Pro, you can. It's a, it is a little bit of a strange decision. I think the feedback they got from Pro customers was that you know these kinds of systems often get mounted on a wall or on an arm, and they wanted that versatility rather than having it be like either one or the other. And once you get it, you're stuck with it. Yeah. And, and before we move on, uh, because both the iMac Pro and the iMac um, are a little long in the tooth, if someone's listening and thinking about getting a new one, any advice? You know, I, I'm i sure there will be an iMac update, iMac Pro update at some point. I'm, I'm, I think more likely the iMacs will get updated in the next six months. The iMac Pro might. Um, I think Intel is working on a new Xeon processor that might be good in this, but it would not surprise me if this has a long upgrade cycle where it might be another year plus before we see something. I mean, I hope not, but it could happen. Um, it's a, it's, it's still <laughs> to this day. I mean, it's a an incredibly powerful Mac. It's basically the most powerful Mac you can get, and if you want that kind of power, um, go out and get it. Uh, obviously, in twenty nineteen. The, the new Mac Pro will come and that will have its own, uh, you know, it, it will it will take that crown. Right. And that so if you can wait, you can find out what the uh, the Mac Pro has to offer. And then also there's the new Mac Mini, which is depending on your needs, can be spec'd up to be a pretty powerful system. Its own self 
and, you know, and even if you need graphics, you could stick an eGPU on it. So there's lots of things you could do with that. So the it's more complicated now than it was a year ago when this was very clearly the Mac to buy if you wanted a powerful Mac. But um, I do love it. And for a certain audience who doesn't really care about the needing a modular Mac Pro with an external monitor or anything like that, it is uh, it's pretty great. I love it. I, I have no regrets a year later. And, and I do suspect that Mac Pro is going to be uh, a lot more expensive than the It's not going to be a 5K Pro. Mac Pro? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> and, and for people who are looking to, to buy out there, where do you think they get the most bang for their buck now? Where, where should you spend your dollars if you're going to be configuring your machine? Is it on RAM? Is it on updated processor? Is it on a bigger hard drive? I mean, I know it depends, but if your dollars are limited, you've got to put them somewhere. Well, I mean, it it does depend. I I feel like RAM is probably the best place to start, if only because um, it's a lot easier to uh, do outboard storage. Like buying an external SSD is uh, it's not cheap, but it's not super expensive, and it's also pretty easy. You could even Velcro it to the back of your iMac, for example, right? Like you can get out outboard storage pretty easily. Or if you've got network attached storage, there are lots of ways to go. I don't think you necessarily need multi terabyte SSD inside, um, depending on what you're doing. But I think that RAM, you know, it's harder to uh, to update that. Although on the on the iMac, it's easy to update that. So you can well, do that models, after uh, the fact. On the iMac Pro, I should say. And, and yeah, the 27-inch uh, 5K iMac as well. There's a little door that you can get access to that's got uh, the RAM modules in it. Um, so, so, you know, I think in most cases, the processor updates are not uh, the best deal. But on some of the Mac Mini models, I think the processor updates can be very good because the base model is an i3. And although it's pretty fast, it's an i3 and you can get a up to an i7 for that and likewise on the on the iMac Pro depending on the workload you're doing i have i have several friends who have the 10 core model and feel they they felt like that was the best kind of price performance option for them and so i can see it there too but like and look fast internal storage is great too but for me i've got a big external drive on my network and so i don't need a huge amount of working space on my device and i think this uh this imac pro comes with a terabyte ssd that's plenty for me to do my job and then i offload everything else to external storage and uh if i wanted fast local storage i would probably buy a uh, a fast ssd and like i said maybe even velcro it on the back so it just i never see it but it's always there this episode of mac power users is brought to you by smile software and their amazing pdf pen suite of applications you can learn more by visiting smilesoftware.com slash podcast so it's hard to believe this will probably be the last time I get to talk to you about my favorite PDF tool of choice, and that is PDF Pen. I have been using PDF Pen for years, long before they were a sponsor on Mac Power Users, and that's saying something because they've been a sponsor of Mac Power Users since the very beginning. Simply put, PDF Pen is the ultimate tool for editing your PDFs. It can help you go paperless with scanning and OCRing your documents. It can help you mark up and highlight your PDFs. With it, you can search and redact sensitive information such as social security numbers or account numbers. You can correct text and PDF. You can convert PDF documents to Word or with the Pro version. You can even convert them to things like Excel and more. Uh, you can redact information. You can move and adjust images. You can even record and playback audio annotations. There is so much that you can do with PDF Pen. You will wonder why you ever used just a generic PDF viewer software before. And with version 10, it offers a slew of advanced features with power to you, like the ability to add text and watermarks with opacity and rotation controls, the ability to apply header and footer text. 
and a feature that I've been looking for for a long time, and that is the ability to batch OCR by taking multiple scans and turn them into custom searchable documents. And as we've talked about so many times on Mac Power users, once you can look at the text inside a PDF document, you can then use other tools to do all kinds of things within that document and act on them. And of course, while you can use PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro on your Mac, you can also take the power of PDF Pen and use it in your pocket or in your lap with PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone as well. You can learn more about the entire suite of Smile Software's productivity software by heading over to smilesoftware.com podcast. Learn about PDF Pen for the Mac, PDF Pen Pro for the Mac, PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone, and PDF Pen Scan Plus. So my sincere thanks to Smile Software for their long-term support of Mac Power users and for supporting me along my journey to live a more paperless and efficient life. So, um, Jason, I know David is uh, stomp, uh, chomping at the bit to talk to you about the iPad and iOS, but you did bring up a, a point before we moved there that I wanted to, to jump in on. And you have uh, transitioned over to a Mac Mini, and I know that you've got some external storage attached to it, and you're using that kind of as a home server. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing with the new Mac Mini? Yeah, so I had uh, two generations ago Mac Mini as my home server. I actually had a Mac Mini running as a server in my house since the original Mac Mini. Um, and before that, I had a, I want to say a Power Mac G3 as my server. I've had a server in my house for a very long time. I actually wrote a book, uh, co-wrote a book in the 90s about running a Mac as an internet server, which, um, you know, didn't sell very well because there weren't that many people who were using a Mac as an internet server in the 90s. But I have I have been running one since then. So it's been a very long time and it's been a Mac Mini since the Mac Mini has been a thing. But my Mac Mini was long in the tooth. It was starting to kind of come apart. It was kind of sporadically just stop it would sometimes just stop working and I'd need to re uh, I reboot it. I need to power cycle it. Um, so I bought the base model. Um, I did end up, what I ended up doing is buying the 899 model that had the upgraded ethernet because um, the iMac pro supports uh, 10 gig ethernet. And I thought, well, wait a second, if I get a Mac mini that supports 10 gig ethernet and a 10 gig ethernet switch, then I can have incredibly fast transfers to that device from my my working Mac here. And so I bought that one and it was basically a drop in replacement. I, you know, I did a, I did a a time machine restore and my server was back, which was great. And it's a, the big, the big difference was that I needed to use an adapter because I have a Drobo 5D, which means it does Thunderbolt 2. So I have a Thunderbolt 2 to Thunderbolt 3 adapter on, on uh, the cable that goes into the Mac mini. And, uh, and that's it. it. It basically has just continued to the the line. I think it's my third or fourth different Mac Mini that I've had in there as a server. And what I use the server for changes over time. It is, you know, it's running my personal weather station and it's generating a few web pages related to that. And it's uh, got uh, it's doing some processing. Actually, I've got Hazel on there and it does some processing of some various drop folders and Dropbox um, that it's kind of doing all the time. It's a Plex server. And, you know, primarily it is also my file server so that I can move my uh, video and audio project files back and forth between my iMac and the enormous, uh, like, 15 terabytes or whatever I've got on the Drobo. And the decision to do that with a Mac Mini as opposed to, you know, now all of these smart NASs that are that are out there with the Synologies and, and those types of things, you still feel like you get more bang for your buck with the Mac Mini and can do things with the Mac Mini that you couldn't necessarily do with some of those? Because I feel like that, that gap is getting narrower, but still a gap. 
so for me, a lot of it has to do with the legacy of this and, and just kind of like adding, I used to have uh, just hard drives hanging off of it. And then I got the Drobo because I already had the Mac mini server and now I've got the Drobo. So I'm going to continue to have a Mac mini because it's not a standalone NAS. It's a, it's a, a Drobo disc instead of a Drobo uh, NAS. And so some of it is just the history of me starting with that, uh, beige G3 <laughs> as my server and then a blue and white G3 and then it's just sort of gone from there um, that that I do it this way. There may be other ways to do it. I will say I like the fact that it's running Mac OS. I'm not comfortable using Linux or Windows. I can and have and will again, but I'm not comfortable with it. And I'm comfortable with the Mac and I know Mac software and I've got a lot of Mac software. And so it's one of those things where I could get a NAS and then it's got some variation of Linux on it and I could install some software on it to do what I want. But I'm just much more confident having a Mac because I know the apps that I can use there. And if I need to get down into, you know, command line or, or compile some open source software and in, in the terminal and, you know, run in the terminal and all that, I can do that. But um, ultimately it's, it's a Mac and it's a device that I understand and that makes me more comfortable. So like, you know, I've got the Mac weather station software and yes, I could probably run different weather station software, but I've been running that Mac weather station software for a decade now. And I've got a, not only is the database, uh, got a lot of great, uh, you know, historical data in it that I would lose if I switched, but also it's just, it's familiar. I know how it works. So there's a, there's a combination of just the comfort with the Mac and the inertia of having, you know, made that initial decision to have a Mac server and then every upgrade, you know, it doesn't happen all at once where I sweep the whole stack away and replace it with something new. So, you know, the old Mac mini went away, but the Drobo stayed. So I would have had to replace the Drobo too. And that makes it all much more expensive. And I was like, I don't need to, the Drobo is fine. And I can keep swapping in new drives when the drives die. And so, you know, I don't know if it's the best choice for, for everybody, but I would say if you're thinking about doing a, a server and you've got um, server application stuff that you know about or are comfortable about that's, that's you know, stuff that you would want to run on a Mac. It's also just handy to have a utility Mac around um, because, like, when I'm on a vacation and something comes up and I need to do something on a Mac, my iMac is shut down. I don't leave my iMac running while I'm on vacation, but that server is up. And I can get to that server and I can do stuff on that. And I have done that before. So it's, again, it's also really convenient that I've got a, a Mac or if I'm in the house on the couch using my iPad um, and I need to look at something that is on the the Mac, I can do that without going up and booting up my uh, my iPad or my, uh, my um, iMac. So that's good too. Yeah, I feel like, you know, the thing that people forget is there are apps like Hazel out there that are really powerful for people who like to use Apple devices. And you don't get that with a NAS. I mean, when you have a, a an actual Mac running, it actually gives you quite a bit uh, of software that's just not available otherwise. Right. And I know how to use Hazel because I've used it on my iMac, too. So that that's the other advantage is yes I'm sure I could write a shell script that fires on a cron job that 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 filters the files in a particular directory but I could do that I would not be comfortable doing that I would rather not do that and I I say to myself oh yeah I have hazel I'll just put hazel on the server and run it on the server and then all of a sudden it's processing regardless of whether my iMac is on or off the certain folders in my Dropbox are processed and files are moved to the right places and all of that 24-7. And it's great. And because I already knew how to use Hazel and I already had Hazel, that became 
a, you know, a great way to do that. And if it was not a Mac, that wouldn't have happened. Well, um, you did talk about accessing it from remote stuff. And, and something I'd like to talk to you about, Jason, is um, uh, you've made a bit of a transition. I mean, when when we first became friends, I remember uh, you talking at great length about your, uh, I believe it was the original MacBook Air, the the one with the <laughs> the docking port, you know, like the Starship Enterprise where it would fold down. And Yeah, yeah. No, nothing like a flip down door on a laptop. Yep. Yeah, well, but you were a big advocate of it and you made a really good case because, you you know, you were always a small laptop guy and that was the ultimate one. They pulled it out of an envelope. And I, I think we all make fun of that now, but it, it was really I mean, it's still kind of amazing when you think they put a Mac into something that small. But anyway, um, so you've always been that way. And then the other day I was listening to you on a podcast where someone referred to you as a, an iPad guy, Jason Snell, <laughs> an iPad guy like Jason Snell. And I got thinking, when did Jason become an iPad guy? And and tell us a little bit about your history with these small laptops and, and what's happened. Well, I'm going to I'm going to quote from uh, David Sparks, who said, uh no, there there are people out there who are like which are you are you team Mac or are you team iPad and uh the the line is I'm team both, right? And that is that is basically where I am. So I am a desktop Mac user, but I basically don't use a Mac laptop anymore. So I use my iMac. I sit at my desk and I use my iMac and I love it. And I have that Mac server and I love it. I. Um, when I go out of this room into the rest of my house or when, when I travel, I try very hard to not take a Mac with me. I basically am using the iPad Pro all the time for all of that stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it, it has its moments where I think, hmm, if only I had access to a Mac here. Sometimes that's very nice that I can use that remote, uh, you know, I can use screens or something like that and connect back to my server and do a thing that uh, only can be done on the Mac. But mostly I don't need to do that. Uh, it's been a while since I needed to do something like that. The tools have, have caught up in, in many ways, if not always. And uh, yeah, so so that's basically where I am now is that I'm a desktop Mac user, which I know is a, a very much a min- minority, right? Most Macs that are sold are laptops. But for mobility purposes, I'm an iOS user. Yeah, and I don't think desktop Mac user is as much as a minority as it used to be because of that. Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, Apple, in terms of overall sales, it's whatever, two-thirds or three-quarters of the Mac sold are are laptops because laptop is more convenient, right? Like my wife used to use an iMac on a desk, and now she just has a, she's had a MacBook Air the last few years, and that's just that we don't have the computer on the desk anymore. And she was like, really? We're going to do this? I said, it's going to be great. And it is great. She can use it wherever. Like laptops are super convenient. What I found is that when I traveled, I always traveled with my iPad. What I found when I was lounging around the house is that I always had my iPad out to check email, to look at Twitter, to look things up on the internet. I I liked having the iPad. I preferred it to bringing out the laptop and folding it open and having the keyboard and having all of that. I preferred just having the iPad laying on the table, pick it up, look at something, flip, you know, do some reading, put it back down. Um, and, and so I started using the iPad more and more and more. And then when I was traveling, I started, I, I, I love the iPad. So I was always going to bring my iPad with me. And then I was also bringing a laptop. And so the iPad became non-negotiable. At this point, I'm always traveling with an iPad and a MacBook Air because it was always the MacBook Air. Um, and at some point I thought to myself, I wonder if I could get away with not taking the MacBook Air. Could I just do it 
you know, would it be enough with the iPad that I don't need to bring the MacBook Air? One fewer thing to charge, one fewer thing to bring with me, you know, totally incompatible charging too. At that point, it was Lightning and MagSafe. Um, And I tried it. And in most cases, it's been great. Every now and then, especially in the early days, I would run into things where I'd think, oh boy, I I could really use a Mac for that. But, um, But most of that has gone away. But that was really what drove it was, I thought, do I need to travel with both an iPad and a MacBook? Because I'd really, the one that I'm definitely going to travel with is the iPad. <laughs> so can I get away with leaving my, my MacBook at home? And the fact is, I've got my, still got my MacBook Air that I took with me when I left <laughs> IDG. And uh, it's sitting right next to me here. And I could not tell you the last time I opened it for something that wasn't, uh, I, I was running High Sierra on it while I was reviewing Mojave. So I was able to like compare, like, what did it look like? on high Sierra, like for, for work reference purposes in this office. But in terms of like traveling with it, I can't tell you the last time that MacBook air left my house. It's probably been years. And when's the last time you used it for like work, work, like writing or even just file management, things like that. For something that wasn't literally like, let me compare this to, uh, you know, for writing about the Mac basically, which doesn't really count. Uh, it's been a while. I mean, it's, it's probably been years. It's probably been certainly more than a year because I just don't, I just don't need it. Plus, you know, it's non-retina and it's just, it's not, the the iPad is a better experience in a whole bunch of different ways. And so it's just, it's, it's just kind of gotten out of, of my habit. And it's, and it's weird because I love the MacBook Air so much and have loved it for uh, its entire existence. And yet the, the fact is that I just never pick it up because the iPad does uh, what I want and does it better, and I'm not I'm not going to be separated from my iPad. So here we are. I feel like you're kind of living the best of both worlds because you've got this monster iMac that can do anything you need it to, and um, when you're away from your desk, you don't have to worry about correct font files and you know all the little things that come with you know owning and running a, a Mac laptop. Well, and it's the flexibility of it too. Like the iPad can have a keyboard on it, but it doesn't have to have a keyboard on it. Whereas the Mac, you know, a MacBook has two, those two surfaces. It's got the keyboard part and it's got the screen part and that's how it works. And you can't just rip the keyboard off <laughs> when you all you need is the screen. It doesn't work like that. And so, the, you know, I can bring a keyboard with me, but not have it attached. And then the moment where I think, uh, oh, I need to write an article, then I can get the keyboard and then I can work like it's a laptop. But then I, at the end of that, I can pull the keyboard away and the keyboard's gone. And that's a great advantage of the iPad. The other thing I like about your story is that um, a lot of people in the tech press, you know, will often do this as a stunt. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to go two weeks without my computer and use an an iPad. I'm going to write a story about it. But it seems to me like you kind of backed into it where you just realized that, oh, you know, with the stuff I can do now on the iPad, the laptop isn't as important. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I, I I will say that anybody who's in this business is always keeping an eye out for um, would would this be an interesting thing to experience so that I could talk about it or write about it, right? Like I make I make tech decisions sometimes because I think, well, I should do this because then I can then I can have had this experience. It will inform what I write. It will inform what I talk about. Not necessarily like here's a stunt I'm going to do, but more like I'm going to try this because let's see what it, where it leads. But it did in this case, it was not really intended as anything other than um, I had a personal realization that I, I was not going to travel without an iPad. And so maybe the way to slim my travel 
bag was to just leave the Mac at home. And in the early days, um, it was pretty instructive because it was a lot uh, more complicated then than it is now. What's the stuff that you like to do most with the iPad? Honestly, the stuff I love to do most with the iPad is the stuff that I used to do with a laptop that is just a little less invasive now, which is checking Twitter and looking in Slack and checking email and looking things up on web pages and just stuff that I do around the house. Um, That's what made the iPad indispensable to me. Um, What I also do in terms of work on it now is, you know, obviously I can write on it. There are lots of different ways you can write on an iPad that don't involve tapping on on the touchscreen. And I do those. I've written thousands and thousands of words this year on the iPad. And um, I do that. I do podcast editing on the iPad now. Um, and I've got some other, you know, stuff that I do with shortcuts that lets me, um, you know, kind of speed up some of my iPad workflow stuff in ways where I got frustrated that the iPad was not as uh, as speedy or as convenient as maybe the equivalent on the Mac. You do run into those once in a while. Um I want to talk later about your podcast editing because I think that's kind of fascinating. Um, but but what are this, the parts on the, the iPad, you know, when you're traveling or when you're using around the house that, that do cause you some frustration? Um, I, I'd say it's, it's the places that you'd suspect uh, from what everybody talks about about this stuff. Um, the... When I'm traveling, like the lack of of uh, proper file import bites me. Um, if I'm, uh, especially if I'm recording podcasts using an uh, uh, an external recorder, uh, and then I want to edit those podcasts on my iPad, I've I've got files on an SD card. I've got a USB C device now. I it can't see those files, so I had to buy a third party device that very cleverly actually has an SD card slot. And um, is a Wi-Fi base station of its own, and has a and has its own app, and it's a the it's a Kingston uh, little box. It's also a, ba- a like a backup battery. I've got one of those. I think I take when I travel. Yeah, so so I can turn it on and plug in the SD card and open their app, and it can see all of the audio files that I recorded, and then I can transfer them via Wi-Fi uh, fairly fast, one by one. Um, that's kind of ridiculous because what I really should be able to do is plug in the, either the recorder or an SD card reader to my USB-C port and open the files app and see those files and copy them where I want them to go. And it just, it doesn't do that. Um, because I do a lot of podcasting audio input, it's one of those things where the audio subsystems of iOS are, um, lots of parts of them, I think haven't been, um, rethought since the earliest days of the iPhone. So, um, if you are listening to music, for an example, and then you open an app that you wants to use the audio subsystem or access the microphone, you will discover, and this happens with, like in the photo, in the camera app, you'll see this. You're listening to music and you open the camera app and your music just stops playing because the system doesn't let two apps have access to a bunch of audio stuff simultaneously. And this is bad if you're a podcaster because what you really want to do is open Skype and an audio recording app in multitasking so you can record your microphone while you're talking to somebody and that's how you make a podcast it just it doesn't do that it, it and and that's uh so that kind of stuff is what frustrates me a lot of the stuff that used to bother me you know is kind of been handled in terms of with shortcuts and with the files app and with other apps that have come along i don't hit the wall like i used to and with things like external keyboards and all of that uh there are so many different places where i'm not frustrated like i used to be but file file access and the audio stuff 
there's only so much you can do other than these kind of ridiculous hardware workarounds. Um, it's really up to the platform owner. So it's really up to Apple. Apple has to make a next step in these areas and it just hasn't done it yet. Yeah. I feel like there's, there's a lot of low hanging fruit with file management in general. Right. I mean, files has been, uh, it's been what, two years since they've been, since they put files out. So it's, it's probably right at the time where the next OS revision is going to rethink uh, the files app and kind of give it a once over. And it's good because like files app existing is good, but the next step is to fix all the things that are wrong with the files app. And, you know, when you're selling a thousand dollar iPad pro, I think, and you've got a files app already there. I think having it not be able to one uh, look at external devices that you plug into it and copy the files off and two see, uh, uh, file shares on a local network are things that are not excusable in, you know, and I get, I get that in the future, everything needs to be in the cloud, but there are people in businesses who have local file servers that they can't connect to without third-party apps. And of course, there's my story where I've got files on an external SD card and I can't get to it because uh, iOS only sees photos and videos on SD cards. And uh, if you're a an iPad Pro user and somebody from your office has a USB stick with uh, PowerPoint presentation on it. You've got PowerPoint on your iPad, but you can't see that file because there's no way to get it in off of a USB device. So, you know, it's it's those things that are the frustrating part and that, that I think are ripe for change. And I, I choose to be optimistic that 2019 is going to be the year where the um, operating system catches up with the hardware. Hopefully you'll be able to even create a folder. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that <laughs> so, be nice? It's something we did on the Mac since the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think they'll get there. I mean, the files was such a revelation just to have access to files and a file system at all. And it's become, I, I feel like, more useful and usable over time that the, the improvements that they've made and the apps supporting it have made it. Like I the other day I tapped on a markdown file in the files app and it properly opened my text editor and loaded the file like like i double clicked on it on the mac and i had a moment where i said wait did it do the right thing here and it totally did i was kind of amazed that it it all worked it's like you're so close now we've come so far but we're not all the way there yet this episode of the mac power users is brought to you by our friends at luna display have you ever looked at your ipad and wished you could use it as a second display for your mac well that's what luna display does for you and it makes sense, right? Your iPad is already a gorgeous display, and you can always use some extra space when working from your Mac. The Luna display provides crystal clear image quality, reliable performance, and wireless flexibility. You just pop a little piece of hardware into your Mac, and you're good to go. And if you don't have a Wi-Fi connection, no worries. You can connect it with USB. When using Luna display, you can set up your workspace anywhere. So you can be productive at the office, in the studio, or on the go. You can get more screen real estate without the expense of buying a new screen. I've got my Luna display plugged in at this very moment, giving me data on this recording on my extra screen using my fancy iPad Pro as a second screen for my Mac. Luna also acts as a complete extension to your Mac, so it's going to support your external keyboard as well as your Apple Pencil and touch interactions, so you can interact with your Mac with a swipe of a finger. I really like this Luna display. It's a small device, doesn't take a lot of room, 
very easy to set up. And the best thing is it does exactly what they promise. It gives you a second screen for your Mac that you can use in your home or on the road. You know, think about being in a hotel room and having a laptop with a Luna display as your second display. It makes it that easy. Listeners of Mac Power users can get an exclusive 10% on Luna Display. Just go to lunadisplay.com and enter the promo code POWER. That's P-O-W-E-R at checkout. Once again, that's lunadisplay.com and promo code POWER at checkout. Our thanks to Luna Display for their support of the show and all of Relay FM. So, Jason, you've um, made kind of a full circle on something that I haven't quite gotten there yet, but I, I, I may be susceptible to turning. And you, <laughs> you like me, yeah, well, you, you reviewed the Apple Pencil. It was there. It was nice. But um, it, you didn't really have anything to do with it after your initial input with it. But now that the Apple Pencil version 2.0 has, has come out and it's a new, better pencil that works with the new iPad Pro, it seems like you've become a convert. Yeah, I I wrote a piece about this at Macworld. I I don't draw. I don't like to write by hand. I'm very bad. The moment that I could type my papers for school, I stopped handwriting them because I I just don't like it. So the pencil for me was always sort of like... I agree with all these things. Right, right. So you know what I'm talking about. So I would be like, oh, well, this is interesting. And I'd sketch a a doodle, a a really bad doodle or draw a circle that wasn't really circular. And I'd be like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then I would would just stop. And the old pencil also, you know, it would roll away. (laughs) It would be, you know, when I would look for it, I didn't know where it was. And if I found it, then it was dead. And then I have to plug it in awkwardly into the iPad and it sticks out and... It just so I basically just never used them other than like when I needed to write something about like, oh, it does this thing with the pencil and I would take a screenshot and all that. And then the pencil was gone again. So um, this new pencil, I decided to give it a try. And in the intervening time, one of the apps I use, which is Fairite Recording Studio, which is this podcast editing app that I use on iOS that is great. Um, the developer added all sorts of Apple Pencil features. And I thought, well, I'm going to try this. I, I've been editing on this thing with my just my hands, with my fingers. But what if I tried it with the Apple Pencil? And it was great. It like was a, it was more precise. It was faster uh, because now I'm kind of using my hands, uh, you know, or at least one hand. And then I'm also touching with the pencil and it's kind of working in concert and uh, with more precision because of the pencil tip versus my fingertip. And uh, I, I really kind of got into it and it felt really good. And I had that moment where I thought, oh, this is why people are excited by the pencil because I had not had an app that I actually wanted to use, that I had a real application for, right? Like I didn't have that because sketching is never going to be my thing and handwriting notes is never going to be my thing. But with the podcast editing app, I finally got it. And and then you combine the fact that the new pencil, the number two pencil is, uh, it's like more pleasant to hold because it's that matte finish. It magnetically attaches so that you know where it is. Uh, The magnetic attachment also charges it, so it's going to be charged. And if it's not charged, you don't have this thing where you don't want to use your iPad because there's this weird pencil sticking out the bottom of it. Um, You know, it's so the the hardware improvements help, but it's also just, uh, you know, I found an app that actually I would want to use with it. And that's when I got it and said, okay, I see why this is uh, a a real, uh, uh, you know, it changes the game in terms of the input into this thing. If you've got an app that actually can take advantage of it. And I just never experienced that for real before. Um, And so now, yeah, I, I, I actually don't know where I put my pencil today. I've, and I've been looking around for it a little bit and I'm, I'm a little bit like, 
uncomfortable. Like, where did it go? Like, I actually care where it is, which uh, never happened with the old one. <laughs> We've got Find My AirPods. I feel like there should be a Find My Pencil feature. There may be, because it's a Bluetooth thing. So it may be like, where was the last time I saw the pencil Bluetooth? And I, ha- I, I should probably look at that. Otherwise, I'm going to be asking my family, like, if you see that Apple Pencil, you should let me know, because I do actually care. It's interesting because it's just like on the traditional desktop computer, you had different paradigms of input, you know, like the double click is a, I remember when that first became a thing and it changed the way people thought about how they make their apps. I feel like the pencil could be that as well for iPad. And, um, I don't, I don't feel that it's a, you know, everybody always go, every time we talk about this on the show, I hear from some listener talking about the Steve Jobs quote saying, if you have a, uh, was if you had a, if if you see a stylus, they blew it. Yeah. yeah. I don't really see it as, I think it's an enhancement to the device. It's not, it's not necessary, but it it can make a difference with the right applications. People who do that don't remember or are ignoring the context of it, which is the point. Whole point was that if you have to use a stylus in order to use the device, they blew it. That's what Steve Jobs was saying. If we have to bundle in a stylus and that's how you interact with our touchscreen, you've blown it because you really want it to be about touching it with with fingers. And the fact is the iPad does not require a stylus. The pencil is there as an additional input mode. And, and you're right. It is like um, it's like choosing between a mouse and a trackpad or it's like all the people who use uh, Wacom tablets attached to their Macs or back in the day, even like a regular graphics tablet. I know people who have RSI who have come to swear by not using a mouse at all, but having a pen and a tablet. And that's how they mouse around their screen. And they love it. And, and it kind of boggles my mind as somebody who doesn't particularly like uh, pens or pencils, but for them, that it just it works better for them. And so that's what the Apple Pencil is. is it's an alternate input method. Um, I don't do what some people do, which is like, then I use it to move around and, and interact with other apps. I literally, I use it to edit in Ferrite. And then if I leave Ferrite, I put it on the little magnet. <laughs> and then I do things with my fingers until I'm back there. Because it for me, that's not, I'm not trying to have it be a replacement for the stuff I can do with my hands on the iPad. It's for some very specific precision use but for that it's great but you could also see yourself using it in other applications that need that precision pointer if the need arose so it's there for sure for sure for sure in fact i i have gone through that where i thought to myself what other apps do i use where the pencil would be great and i have not yet come out i think if i did video editing on the on the ipad i would uh for similar reasons uh find it valuable there just because doing some kind of precision stuff i haven't thought of other places where i might use it but that's okay quite honestly um it's been uh, it's great in the one app and that's a a key app for me and if that's the only place where i use it that'll be fine because i use it there and i love it and you're also kind of finicky about your ipad keyboards right you've got a you've got a couple that you are favorable i i care about my keyboards i do i do um the so the on the current ipad pro because it's new there aren't a lot of keyboards available for it the nice thing about it is usb keyboards work so like one thing i do a lot is i i go to my kitchen i've got a stand from a company called Viazon. It's just I found on Amazon. That's <laughs> this. Uh, it looks like an iMac foot and it's got kind of a clamp and you just stick your iPad in it and then your iPad is up on a stand and you can turn it horizontal or vertical. But once I've got that, then I can attach any keyboard, Bluetooth or USB to it. And and um, I've been using that with a mechanical keyboard and that's pretty great. And then when I 
when I travel right now, I'm using the Smart Keyboard Folio, which I think is really good. I think it's way better than the old one in part because it's just not as bulky and uh, as the old one was. But um, and, and some of that is that the, the 12.9 iPad is smaller and so there's less surface area. So there, there's just less material there. But what I'm really looking forward to is the new version of the thing that I used all the time on my 12.9 iPad Pro previous model, which is something called the Bridge Keyboard from a company called Bridge, B-R-Y-D-G-E. And it's a MacBook style, you know, right down to the you know metal finish and the and the and the keys uh bluetooth keyboard and it's got like clamps and you basically slide the ipad into the clamps and it turns your ipad into a laptop essentially um which you can you can position kind of at any angle and you're typing on uh, keys that actually have key travel like real keys and I love that on the old one. So they're making a new one that comes out uh, early next year, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, and people say, well, why don't you just get a laptop? And my answer is what I said earlier, which is the great thing about that bridge keyboard is when I'm done using it as a laptop, I just pull the iPad out, and it is not a laptop anymore. And I can't do that with a MacBook. It's always going to have the keyboard. And I, I don't want I, – I, even as a writer, I don't use a keyboard with my iPad 90% of the time, 90% of the time, I'm just using the touchscreen. I don't want a keyboard. If I'm going to write an article, I'll attach a keyboard either via Bluetooth or smart connector or USB. But most of the time, I don't want it. And that's the great thing about the iPad is when I don't want there to be a keyboard, there isn't one. So 90% of the time you type on glass. I never knew that. No, no. I'd say 90% of the time I'm not typing. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Or I'm just typing yeah. responses on Twitter or in Slack. Like if I'm going to write something like write something i will attach a keyboard and actually i'm doing that more now with a smart keyboard folio because i actually leave it on a lot of the time which the old smart keyboard i did not leave on my ipad because it was just too big too heavy too awful i I was not interested this smart keyboard folio is um less offensive to me so i keep it around a little bit more uh so i do sometimes flip it open and and start typing away that way but you know I just I feel like most of my iPad usage is not intense writing where I need to rev up to 100 words a minute and I can just do that on glass and it's fine. I don't know that 90% of my usage is intensive typing, but I use the Smartfolio keyboard all the time even if it's just a couple of sentence email and um I've I've got some RSI and although I certainly can type on the glass if I'm typing more than a sentence or two, I really don't want to type on the glass. So the the smart keyboard folio has really changed the way that I use the iPad because it's always with me. It's always on my iPad. And, and it's really what has changed the iPad from just a consumption scroll on something device to a device that, you know, I don't mind pounding out an email on. It's It's something that I can throw in my purse and now have an iPad and a keyboard with me all the time. And I've I've talked about that at length on the show before. I, I'm not sure how I feel about the new Smartfolio keyboard. I mean, I, it's it's the best of, of what's out there for, for what I want it to be because I've tried the the separate Bluetooth keyboard and the iPad and it's it's just not what I want. I want the keyboard with it all the time. So it's it's the best solution that it's out there. Um I actually think the new one is bulkier than the old one. I mean, it does have the the wraparound back, but it's just something about it. It's it's very uh blah. Well, it's very blah. It is the most boring accessory that Apple has designed in recent memory. It's just a vast expanse of gray. It is super boring. Um, I've put stickers on mine, and I'm not a sticker person. I tried that, and I just got it just got messy, and it made me uncomfortable, and I took them off. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, I have left them on. It's surprising because I don't like stickers on things either, but I needed to put something on it so it wasn't just this vast expanse. But 
it's not the the thing that always got me was that the cover part of the old keyboard folio was it was that stair step so there was like a thick part and a thin part and i was just oh i hated it so much and on the 12.9 you know it's also so wide so that's all that weight and all that surface area um and it just i would just rip rip it off as soon as i could i just i i could not take it and what for whatever reason this new one I uh I will actually I've got it on right now. I'm I'm I've just picked it up and it's like yeah, it is thicker than if you if you strip it off and I do strip it off entirely uh fairly often, but when I'm just kind of walking around, I I have taken to bringing it in the keyboard folio and then if I open it up and I decide I'm not typing anything, I just pull it off <laughs> and I I I just let it sit there. <laughs> It's the convertible idea. PCs have them, right? These convertibles. And that that's that's what appeals to me, I think, ultimately about the iPad is that it is convertible. It can be a laptop-like typing device, but it doesn't have to be. And I like that because I want a tablet, but I also sometimes need a laptop. And Apple, at least, doesn't let me choose. I either have an iPad or a MacBook, and a MacBook can't be a tablet, so <laughs> I'm going to use the iPad <laughs> and add a keyboard sometimes, and that's just how it has to be. Did you decide between 12.9 and 11? I don't know that I ever had heard whether you chose which one you were going to go with. I was leaning toward the the smaller one when this was all just a, a bunch of rumors. But once I got my hands on the on the new 12.9, it is Apple made such the right decision to leave the uh, leave the size of the smaller model alone and, and grow the screen and take the larger model and leave the screen alone and shrink the the device because the 12.9 was just a little bit too big and although the the current 12.9 is still big um it's less big enough that i was happy to stay with it and i i am so i'm still using that and the 11 is really nice it's you know it's that screen is that much bigger that it's it's the difference between them is that much less um but i uh I still have the the 12.9. I, I, you know, I just, I, I was on the edge, on the verge of switching to the smaller one. But once I actually got my hands on both of them, I thought to myself, no, no, I'm going to be happier with the bigger one. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. You can learn more by heading over to onepasswordcom slash MPU. So we have always talked about the benefit of using strong, secure passwords across all of your various devices as a way to make sure that you keep yourself safe on the internet. 1Password has been my tool of choice for years for doing just that. It helps you generate unique passwords, it stores those passwords, it remembers them for you, and it automatically fills them. And of course, it syncs across all of your devices, whether you're using a Mac, a PC, an Android, an iOS device. No, just about no matter what you want to do with your information, 1Password is going to keep it secure, keep it synced for you, and make sure that you can have access to it no matter where you are. And you can share the love of 1Password with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers with 1Password for families and 1Password for teams. But you can also share the love of 1Password this holiday season with just about anyone. As this episode drops, it's Christmas Eve, and maybe there's someone on your list that you forgot to buy for, or maybe someone who's been a little extra good this year and who could learn use a little extra something in their stocking. And if you've forgotten to buy for them, you can head over to onepassword.com and pick up a gift card. If you can pick up 1Password gift cards in denominations of 25, 50, or 125, and here's the kicker, you can pick up a $125 OnePassword gift card for only 99 bucks. So it's like a little extra bonus that you can give and give someone else the gift of strong, secure passwords. 
And did you know that you can even buy yourself the gift of 1Password? Because these gift cards can either be used as a credit to a new or existing 1Password.com account. So you can purchase one for yourself or as a great gift to give to someone else. There has never been a better time to spread the love of 1Password than at the holidays. You've got your family all together. You're gathered around the tree. So when you're done opening your presents, have everyone open up their laptops and take a look at their password policies, hand them their 1Password gift card, get them started, and then start taking getting rid of all of their old passwords and set them up with with brand new secure passwords across all of their devices. It's really the gift that keeps giving all year long. So head on over to onepassword.com slash MPU. And thanks to our friends at OnePassword for their continued support of the show. Uh, Jason, I want to give you godlike Tim Cook power right now. Uh-oh. Because you, oh you've been in this racket a few years. Uh, um, and now that you're using the iPad so frequently, a lot of people have thoughts about why they would like to make it better. What, what would you do if you were Tim Cook in terms of hardware and software? Well, having Tim Cook power is, uh, it's, that's a lot of responsibility. Um, talking, staying on my theme about convertibility, I would say I would love an Apple designed laptop style keyboard shell. Um, because I do love the bridge keyboard. I think something actually from Apple that was designed as part of the, you know, the whole idea of the iPad as a convertible, uh, thing that is not a fabric keyboard would be something I would love to see. I would love when Apple comes out with their external display for the Mac Pro and presumably, you know, it'll work with the Mac Mini and all that. I would love for it to be a touchscreen that you could plug an iPad Pro into and it suddenly turns into a giant iPad. I think that would be amazing. I love that idea so much. Just let me say, I mean, just so like, let's say you have a 27 inch screen, you know, or 24 okay, or whatever. 24, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah. 4k or a 5k. Yeah, and you yeah. just plug an iPad into it and suddenly the iPad is on it and you can touch it and move your fingers around. It's a giant iPad. Yeah. Why not? It would be fun to play with if nothing else. Yeah. Oh yeah. It would be, uh, and would everybody want it? No, but some people would, would just kill for it. Um, uh, and then on the software side, uh, for the iPad, I wrote a whole, piece at Macworld that was like a top 10 list of things I'd like to see. But as I've mentioned before, I think file access, both in terms of things like external USB storage and also like SMB file surfers on a local network natively in the files app, I think should be there. I think multitasking needs uh, to be better. You need to see which apps are in focus. Uh, Keyboard shortcuts to control multitasking that don't exist right now need to be added. I want to see external pointing device support. There's already an, a text editing cursor in iOS. I don't see why you couldn't, if people want to, pair a Bluetooth mouse trackpad so that when they're in a desk configuration for an iPad, they would be able to edit text a little more readily. Uh, I would use it. I would be happy to, to have that. That was one of my biggest disappointments with the new keyboard is I was, I knew it was kind of a, a pipe dream, but I was really hoping there'd be a trackpad on there where if you're using it with the keyboard out, that you could control the cursor without reaching up to touch the screen. Right. Uh, And you could roll that together with my imaginary laptop-style keyboard shell on a future iPad Pro, and they they all kind of work together. They have that. I mean, Microsoft does that with the Surface. Their their keyboards have a trackpad in them. Um, In fact, Bridge, the keyboards they make for the Surface have a trackpad in them, but the ones they make for the iPad don't because there's no support for it, and it's it's frustrating. Um, I would also instruct my apps teams to get iOS versions of Final Cut and Logic on iOS because Apple is releasing pro hardware and yet its own pro software isn't on 
iOS. And I think that is, I get that it may not ha- be, be exactly the same or have all the features and there are lots of things, but I feel like saying, no, 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 this is serious hardware. It's pro hardware and you can only use iMovie and GarageBand on it. Like Photoshop's on the iPad Pro, right? In 2019, it will be. Where's Final Cut? Where's Logic? They're not there. I think it's a mistake on their part. And I think that even if it's just to send the message, I think they have to send the message that the platform owner takes it seriously as a pro platform too. Yeah, I feel like throughout the low end, the stuff like, you know, a simple file save and adding folders and things like that needs to be fixed, but you're right on the high end of pro software. We need we need more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and then, you know, I, I guess I'll throw in one other one, which was um, I would give more... <laughs> staff and and resources to uh, the shortcuts team because I love shortcuts in iOS, but it needs to be better. And ultimately, they're going to need to deal with compatibility with macOS, especially as all of the iOS apps start to come over to the Mac and presumably won't be scriptable in any way on the Mac that a uh, a new version of essentially shortcuts that integrates a bunch of this, the automator uh, content as well for the Mac is something that I want to have happen sooner rather than later. So if I was Tim Cook, I'd be able to say, you know, user automation is a priority. Uh, get Sal Segovian on the phone. Uh, get the shortcuts team in here. We're gonna we're gonna do it right. And that's a, speaking of pipe dreams. There's one, but I, I I would love to see more on shortcuts on iOS and eventually um, have it come over to the Mac as well. I just think Apple needs a Sal phone installed. Anyway, just just <laughs> pick it up anytime. <laughs> anytime. Um, the uh, you've written also in the past a lot about the idea of an iOS MacBook or you know a MacBook style clamshell with an iOS device in it. Um, what you know is that something you're interested in? I, I always like reading your articles about it, but I do you think that's going to happen? And and where do you see that falling in this mix? Well, I, I think one of my frustrations, and this just has to do with the way that Apple has split the Mac OS and iOS experiences, is uh, tablets are iOS, laptops are Mac OS. And the problem is, well, what if you want both? Or what if you want iOS, but you want it to be a laptop? Like I said, I bought a Bluetooth keyboard with with these these uh, these clips that you slide your iPad into. It basically turns it into a MacBook temporarily. Like, what? At that point, I'm using an iOS laptop, and I think to myself, why don't they just make an iOS laptop? I think the answer now, now that we know kind of more about what they're doing with Marzipan, is probably that there won't ever be an iOS laptop, but instead, the Mac laptops are going to be more iOS-like, Like, right? Once iOS apps can run on the Mac, maybe at some point, that is how you end up getting touchscreens on the Mac, and then you've got a MacBook but it's running iOS apps and it's got touch and it's basically an iOS laptop, but it's still a Mac too. And that's great because, you know, if you want a laptop, like I said, I think I don't really want a laptop anymore. Ultimately, I think I do want a convertible. That's why I have gravitated toward iOS. But um, but I do think that, there, that an iOS laptop uh, of some kind would have appeal. I just think that what we're actually going to see is a macOS laptop that feels more like iOS uh, in two or three years. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, we're we're entering a, you know, this is Mac Power users. We are entering a very interesting time for the Mac where I feel when you see John Gruber write articles about like, it, are these apps Mac-like or not? You know, there are electron apps that are based on web technologies. They're not Mac-like. And are the Marzipan app 
apps that are based on iOS? Are they Mac-like? I think the truth is that what we call Mac-like, what the Mac is, what Mac software is, um, in the next, I, I want to say five years, it's probably more like two years. Yeah, I think you're right. Is going to be completely redefined, and some people are going to hate it, but um, I think it's inevitable. I think Apple is setting us up to completely redefine what the user experience on their platforms is, and it's going to be unified, and the Marzipan stuff is where that's going to start happening. So it's going to be fun to watch, um, but maybe frustrating as users, right? Because I've been, you and I both, uh, Katie, you've been through it too. Like transitions are terrible, right? They're, they're terrible uh, for the users. And I just, it feels like we're always going through one and sometimes they're big ones and sometimes they're little ones, but it just, it seems like every few years here. Okay, here we go. All right. From from classic to to OS ten, okay. I mean, I realize that was a long time ago now, but I I I, very, I still have have painful memories of that. PowerPC to Intel, right? Right. And we well, this may be a double whammy where it's not only Intel to ARM, but it's also Mac apps to iOS apps. Um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's going to be uh huge and weird. At the same time, I feel like Apple changed their their approach you know, a year or two ago and we started getting inklings of this, that maybe their previous philosophy was we'll just let the Mac sit out there and die. <laughs> and now their, their thought is we are bringing the Mac inside. Um, but that has ramifications because the Mac is maybe not going to be what y- you are used to once it comes inside the big, you know, the big tent of the app store. Well, I, I think you, you make a good point. Not only have we had changes on hardware coming up and software, but we've got people are still dealing with the port changes. It's it's just a time of you know yeah USB C transitions. No, Katie's totally right. We are always in a transition, but this is going to be. This feels like a big one. This feels like a big storm is brewing right now. Right, and then sometimes we're in smaller transitions, whether it's like thirty pin to lightning or or headphone to no headphone, and you know. Those are all still going on too, kind of in the in the background. I I just I and I I feel like I I, I get it more than other people because, and I, I know you all do too, because you you have to then pull along all the other people that you support in these transitions, and and they they blame me for them. I'm like, well, you know, I didn't do this, right? Oh, I I just had that. Um... I just had that this weekend where my wife was building uh we were we were sharing photos and then building a calendar for next year and I wrote a book about photos and of course they got rid of all the Apple uh, calendar and book printing stuff and you have to go through third parties and the apps are different and they're okay but they're different and she several times was like what is happening why is it like this and it was very much me feeling like I'm sorry it's 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 I didn't do it, <laughs> but it you know I I she has come to rely on me as the provider of the tech stuff, and now the tech is betraying her. She's like, why is your tech betraying me? It's like I, I didn't do it, but it it does fall on on the people, the power users. We are all support for the people in our lives who are not the power users, and it, that burden in a transition really does fall on us, and and it it's uh, it can be super frustrating. Yeah, I, I can't wait to try and explain our Max and Marzipan to my wife. That is going to be so fun. Well, I'll tell you, it's um it's one of the reasons I, I I really wanted to get a new iMac. I was expecting that we would get new iMacs this fall, and we didn't. And so I I didn't buy a new iMac. I bought an iPad, which I really didn't need, but why not? Um. And now I, I am thinking, you know, 
if if new iMacs are released, let's say we know that a new iMac is going to release sometime next year. If it's not an ARM machine, which I really don't think it will be, it feels too soon, but who knows? Do I really want to buy it? Or do I just wait? I, I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to buy right before a transition or do I? I don't know. Do you want to buy the last Intel Mac? And because it is that a uh, a dinosaur, or do you want to buy the last Intel Mac because that means that you can ride out the the transition for the next few years? I don't know either. Yeah. That's a, La- yeah. last out or first in. Maybe the answer is neither. You know, um, I want to transition uh, to a different type of tablet and um, uh, talk a little bit about reading with you, Jason, because one of my goals constantly that I, I have on my list of things to do, and, and maybe I'll finally get to do it as I, I make a little more time in my schedule coming up, is I my goal, and it's nowhere nearly uh, as much as you do, is I always try to read at least one book a month. And, you know, 12 books, 12 books a year. It's it's not huge, but it's it's what I try to do. And it's, it's I think, um, more than some people do and probably a lot less than others do. But I think most people have a goal where they would like – I don't know of anyone who says, you know, gosh, I really wish I read less. But um, you do read quite a bit. And so I was hoping we could talk to you a little bit about that, uh, about both um, how you do it and, and in terms of the, the hardware and the technology that you're using for that, whether it's um, uh, actual technology or just you, you pick up a book and do it. Uh, and then also how you, you find time and, and make that a priority and, and make it happen. Well, one of the things that I, I do is I have a podcast, The Incomparable, where I talk about books sometimes. And this works for all the media that we cover on that. It There's nothing like forcing yourself to consume something because you have to talk about it on a podcast. Suddenly, everything is an assignment, which you is turn not, it into a job. Okay. This is the this has been my life for the last eight years. But uh, I always I always was a voracious reader and I still am. And it is actually kind of fun. We we cover all of the um, science fiction and fantasy books that are on the major awards nominee lists, which means that I'm reading what at least some group somewhere considered one of the eight or ten best books of the year uh and that i've discovered some fantastic books that way and also some books that i read and thought why did anybody think this was any good but that's hey it takes all kinds um i so i do love reading i am basically 100 percent on kindle now i don't i got i just got a paper book it's like a coffee table book it's typeset in the future by dave addy which is a beautiful book it's i i I ordered that in hardcover it's huge it's gorgeous it's full of illustrations but in terms of like novels and things like that where it's just text um and even nonfiction, that's all on kindle for me now has been for years too i i can't remember the last time well no i i will read a paper book or two every year mostly because it's um it's at the library and i don't want to buy it and I've bought several other books and my wife works at the library so she can bring it home for me. And that's super convenient. But even then, like those books don't light themselves. You have to like hold them toward the light and things and they don't turn themselves. You have to like flip pages and stuff. Like, what? It's, that's so inconvenient. seems very archaic to me, but I do occasionally read a paper book, but I haven't bought a paper book in ages. So which Kindle are you on? I have the Oasis, the second generation Oasis. Um, because I love reading on the Kindle and it is the best Kindle. It is also the most expensive Kindle. Um, it has physical page turn buttons, which I really love. Um, they innovated at some point and took the, the buttons away. And at that point you're, you've just got a touch screen and you have to tap on it. And I never liked the tapping on the screen as much as the physical buttons. Cause I can just rest my finger 
or my thumb on the page turn on the next page button and sit there and go click, read a page, click, read a page, click, read a page. It's great. And with a touch screen, you have to hold it and get, get get your hand in a grip where you can hold the thing. And then you have to be able to move a finger over the touch screen and tap and then move it back. And I know that seems like not much work, but like it's better to not have to do that. And I was willing to pay to have that. It's a, it's a very nice product. It is not for most people. Most people should just get the Kindle Paperwhite, which they just updated this year uh, for like a third generation version. It's the best price. It's the best value. They've got one that's cheaper, but it's bad. It doesn't have backlighting or anything. The Paperwhite is waterproof now. It's got like a 300 DPI screen. So it's like a laser printer. It is it is very crisp text. It doesn't look like you're reading a computer screen. And my favorite thing, and why a Kindle at all, the answer is, first off, Kindle's not going to send you push notifications. It's not your phone. You don't have Twitter or email or Slack one tap away. Um, it's dedicated to reading and it's distraction-free, essentially. The battery life is very, very good. You know, it's it's many days, if not weeks, if you turn off Wi-Fi. And um, I think it's easier on the eyes because it's not a backlit screen like a an OLED or a backlit LED uh, screen, LCD, LED backlit LCD screen, um, that's a computer monitor. You're looking at light shining up at you. And the Kindle is using e-ink, which is this weird technology that sort of replicates paper. And the light that you see is uh, bouncing back from somewhere else, ideally like the sun. <laughs> but if it's nighttime, um, it's got a little ring of lights around it that kind of bounce and then and then come up and, and hit you in the eyes. And so it feels much more like reading paper. And I like that. I think that's a better, it feels better and different and not like I'm reading my phone because I'm on my phone and my iPad enough. When I'm reading a book, I kind of want to break from that. And the Kindle provides that. So I got lots of reasons. If, if you don't read a lot, you don't need a Kindle. But um, if you read I would say if you're at Katie's level of trying to read a book a month, you're at the level where a Kindle Paperwhite would probably benefit you. Plus, you can have like 50 books in a Kindle uh, or 100 books or 1,000 books, and they all just fit in there, which is great if you're going on vacation. I remember I used to have to rush to finish hardcovers because I'd be 10 or 100 pages away from the end, and I'd be going on a on a trip the next day. And the last thing you want to do is bring a seven-pound hardcover book with you to read the last 50 pages and towed it halfway around the world and back. So the Kindle eliminates all of that. I just love that about these, whether you use an iPad or a Kindle, um, having, you know, a hundred pounds worth of books in these super light devices. I It's amazing. Yeah, I guess I'm old enough to remember what it was like carrying a hundred pounds of books. So it's just so nice. I, that that to me is... The last book I read before I got my Kindle was a Neil Stephenson book that was a thousand pages long. And I, I looked at it. It's five pounds. That book, that, that book weighed five pounds. So, um, yeah, I don't read those books anymore. I just read them on the Kindle. And the other thing, I got a Kindle this year, I think at your encouragement. And I, I really like, because I also read some, some nonfiction stuff. And I love that in these nonfiction books, uh, Kindle will show me what most people have highlighted in these books. And that's just another, it's like, it's like crowdsourcing good, good ideas out of this book. It's like buying a used college textbook and have, that was used by somebody super smart and they've already highlighted it all. And you're like, Ooh, good. <laughs> like this yeah. is, it's a little like that. And you can turn that off if you don't like it, but it is also very easy to highlight passages, take notes. All of those things are, are things that Kindle didn't used to do well, but does actually quite well now. And so when I'm reading, if there's something that is a passage that I want to reference later, you know, I can just tap my 
I, I put my finger down and then drag it across the part I want to highlight and it's highlighted and that's it. And I just keep reading. It's, it's super easy. Um, it's, you know, Kindle's the Kindle software could be better than it is, but it has come a long way since I got the, you know, stuff about the first Kindle back in the day, which was really bad. What about the second half of Katie's question? Um, I know that you, you need to get these books read for all of the content you're producing, but <laughs> do you have like a system? I mean, is there like a time of day that you read or, or how do you, how do you get it done? I don't, I don't have a system. I, I generally read before bed. Um, and then if a book is really grabbing me, I will make time, you know, I'll read it in the morning and I'll read it during lunchtime and I'll make, I'll make time for it. But my sort of daily read time is, uh, before I go to sleep. And that's another reason why I kind of like having the Kindle is that my, um, my distraction devices are away at that point, and I've just got the Kindle with uh, maybe even the light uh, down low, and I'm just uh, you know reading that, and then I'm I'm uh, getting some shut eye, and it's kind of a nice way to end the day. But I will you know, and on vacations, obviously, I'll I'll read wherever, I'll take it to the beach, and and do all of that. And um, but I don't I don't have dedicated reading time beyond that. I also know that if I need to read a bunch of books in the next three weeks, then I will be stuffing that reading time in wherever I can get it. But I love like on a weekend having a slow morning or, or uh, during the summer, like it's a warm day and you go outside and you, you sit and you read for a while. All that is great too. Yeah. If, if anybody out there is at all interested in reading, um, especially science fiction, I can't recommend enough the episodes of Incomparable where they summarize or go through and look at the current award nominees. Those are some of my favorite episodes of that podcast. And every time I find at least one book that I enjoy reading out of it. Well, thank you. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we. that's the fun thing about the experience of doing those is that I've gotten exposed to so many good books. And the nice thing about doing the podcast about it is that you don't need to read the 11 books. You can read the four books that everybody really loved yeah. <laughs> and, or, or like basically my experience has been for the last eight years that I've been doing it. There's been one book that I found that took me by surprise. And that ends up being the book that I recommend to everybody who says, Hey, you read a lot of books. What's a, what's a book I should read. And it, it it's about one a year that I, I say, Oh, this is the book you should read. And it's uh, it's fun to be able to, to discover those things and then to pass them on. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the Omni Group, makers of some of the finest productivity software for the Mac, the iPad, and the iPhone. As we're recording the show, we're getting ready to head into a new year. And maybe it's time you thought about bringing the Omni Group into your life. They make some great applications that can help you really get it together in 2019 and help you get whatever it is you're dreaming about done. Uh, A couple of the apps I'd like to mention is OmniFocus, which is my very favorite task manager. It's the app I use every day to hold it all together. They've also got Omni Outliner, which is an amazing outlining application that allows you to get outlines created that look beautiful and they're powerful as well. People have written entire books using Omni Outliner. I'm using it right now to prepare the next Big Mac Sparky Field Guide. If you need to do some project planning heading into next year, check out OmniPlan. It's a project planning software that is not only powerful, but also beautiful. And if you need to do any sort of design work at all, check out OmniGraffle. OmniGraffle is the design application that I like to think of that works for everyone. I keep that on my iPad and my Mac, and I use it all the time to diagram ideas and thoughts. I even use them as trial exhibits on the lawyer stuff, and I use them as diagrams and um 
images in my books and videos, uh, OmniGraffle is just the application I go to for all of those problems. The Omni Group is a group of software developers and designers up in Seattle that spend all of their time trying to make the best possible software for the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. That's really all they think about, is making your software better so you can accomplish more every day. For years, they've supported the Mac Power User community, and I really appreciate that, but even more so, I appreciate the amazing software they brought to us all. So like I said, you're heading into a new year. Maybe you want to get a little more productive next year. It's time to head over to the Omni Group and check out some of these amazing applications. They all have free trial periods, so you can get in there and kick the tires and see for yourself just how great they are. Thank you, Omni Group, for all of your support of the Mac Power Users. So, Jason, how do you make time for it all? You you went free agent. Uh, it's been a couple of years ago, um, and you you now manage yourself. You work with other people. I think when we last had you on the podcast, um, you know, kind of uh, you, you kind of broke the mold and said, "I don't have a task management system. I do it all in my calendar." Is that still the case? <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Um, it's a little bit more organized now. So I, Mike Hurley got on me to try Todoist and I, uh, I am, I'm now using Todoist with the lightest of touches, but what, um, what that has done is that I used to have a bunch of recurring events as all day, um, items in my calendar, uh, as essentially to do's, this is the day where you need to do this thing. And those have all migrated to Todoist, as recurring events. So now I, I will bring up Todoist and it'll say it is Wednesday. You need to finalize your topics for your podcast on Thursday. I still do that. I still do a lot of calendaring because what I want to do is um, manage. I want to block off time to do my work. So I write a column every week for Macworld. On Tuesday afternoon, I have 2 to 4 p.m. blocked off as write my column for Macworld. Is that a to-do list item? Sort of, but what it really is, is me saying for those two hours, I'm going to work on that and don't, you know, don't schedule anything else there. If I do schedule something else there, I need to move it to another place so that I am sure that I have the time to do that, that job. And I write a column for Tom's guide every other week. So I have a recurring every other week on a Thursday in the afternoon that is write the Tom's guide column. And it's the same thing. It's, it does serve to remind me that I have a column that week, but the primary goal there is just to block off time because I do need to do that things. You know, podcasts are good in the sense that, you know, there's a time where everybody has to be together to record it like we're doing here. And so those go in the calendar, but for writing or other things where you need, uh, you know, a substantial amount of prep time. Um, I I'm still using my calendar for that, but I have, I have pulled some recurring elements off and put them into doist instead. So I'm, I'm better a little bit than I used to be. Well, it's, it's all about what, what works for you. I think my concern with the, with the blocking method is, you know, obviously with a podcast, you, you've got to schedule it. You've got to show up because you have other people involved, at least in the podcast that, that I record. I, I don't know if, if I had two hours blocked off on a particular day that I had to, to write a column. I mean, what if I just wasn't feeling it that day? I don't know. Well, that's, uh, yes, I would say if, you know, occasionally that happens where I'm not, it's not working for me. 
and that gets frustrating. Uh, and I, I need to learn, David and I talked about this in many episodes of the Free Agents podcast. Yes, Sometimes you, you have to learn like to get up and take a break and do something else or go walk the dog and then come back to it. You need to start being aware if it's not happening, don't just sit there for two hours and spin your wheels. Go do something else and come back to it. The nice thing about having it on the calendar is I'm aware that I, I owe that time. And if I need to move it, I will do that. Sometimes I will be working on something and I'll look up and it's I've I've blown through that time and I haven't written my column. And what I usually do is I grab that uh, calendar entry and I'll move it and I'll make a promise to myself later that evening or the next morning that I'm going to do it then. And that's me telling myself, well, you you blew it, but, uh, you know, tell your editor that it's coming in tomorrow morning instead and uh, then write it then. And, you know, in the end, I have I have to write it. It's my job to write that column every week. They pay me to do it. I need to do it. And I just have to find a way. I also end up trying to create uh, mode shifts that make it more likely for me to uh, do a particular kind of work. So not only do I schedule that Macworld column on Tuesdays at 2 p.m., but uh, the last few months, what I've done is on Tuesday around 2 p.m., I pick up my iPad and smart. now it's the smart uh, keyboard folio. And I walk over to my um, local Starbucks that's about a 10-minute walk. And I sit, I get a hot chocolate and I sit down and I write the column there. And believe it or not, that has eliminated most of my I'm not feeling it because I'm, first off, I'm there. So, and I bought myself a hot chocolate, so I need to get to work. <laughs> um, and I don't have any distractions uh, at home because I've left home to do this. And I'm going to be sh- ashamed if I go back without it. <laughs> so that's a it's actually a pretty useful uh, motivator for me. And I kind of get in the habit and start to feel like this is the place where I write that column. And that's been actually really effective to me. So sometimes those are little tricks that I play on myself in order to in order to fill in those uh, those slots on my calendar. One of my best free agent investments was a bike because I totally do that. I have context for different type of work and I get on my bike and I go places. And when I'm in this place, I always do that thing. And it's like somehow the brain is just hardwired for it now. And it's amazing how you can do that to yourself. Then how do you, um, cause I know you've got some help. I know Dan uh, helps you with six colors and then you've got uh, folks on the incomparable that you, you work with. Um, how do you deal with delegating projects and keeping track of, of who's doing what and, and where things are in the process? Well, I mean, most of the projects that I um, I'm working on have fairly clear, uh, you know, representations of whose job it is to do what. So it, it, there's not a lot. Um, I I went through a period, and David and I did talk about this on free agents as well, where I I felt like I um, I needed to offload some work, and so I actually got some. Uh, people to do, especially like podcast production and editing. I actually hired some people and said, um, please do this for me so I don't have to do it anymore. And I pay them and they they do that work for me. And that was that was a good thing. But most of the projects I work on, there's a, uh, we define the roles and everybody's pretty good about it. So with Six Colors, yeah, Dan and I will have a little communication in a Slack channel about sort of like, I'm taking this story. Do you want to write, write this story and all of that? Um, there's a little bit of that. Uh, and then with everything else, all the podcasts, there's generally an understood um, set of responsibilities that just get worked out. So like for upgrade, um, I know Mike is working on the show document on Monday, uh, morning when I wake up, it's there or, and sometimes on Sunday and I will go in and put in notes, 
Um, and then for the download podcast, Stephen Hackett and I go back and forth. We have a shared Google Sheet that we're putting stories into. And I'm booking the guests on Tuesday. I have a to-do list item for that, by the way. Book the guests on Tuesday, set up the topics on Wednesday, work on the script Thursday morning, and then we record. And I edit. And so, you know, we know what our roles are. And, and it just kind of goes. We coordinate in Slack a little bit. But most of the projects I'm on are um, – you know, I'm working with somebody on a single kind of project basis and we know what the division of labor is. And so I don't have to worry about like, how do I delegate that responsibility? So Jason, we have a, a few minutes left before we kind of uh, hit our witching hour. And of course, as, as so often is the case, we've got a lot more left to talk about. Um, are there any greatest hits that you kind of want to hit of uh, things we haven't talked about that you're using on Mac or, or iOS? Uh, any favorite apps that um, we want to hit before we go? Sure. Um, well, I mentioned Hazel, which I didn't used to use, which I've only used in the last year. And um, one of the things that I um, I wanted to just put in a plug for is, um, and I, I again, I referenced this earlier, I use Dropbox and I've really come to enjoy using Hazel as a Dropbox management helper. So I use BB Edit to write on my Mac and I use one writer to write on my iPad. And they both um I've used I've got default folder on my Mac set the, the default folder for BB Edit is a, a folder called stories that's on my Dropbox. And on uh iPad one writer is set to as its default is the stories folder in Dropbox cuz it's got Dropbox integration so it's it's right there. And then on my uh, on my Mac Mini server, I have a Hazel rule that looks in that folder, and if a file hasn't been modified in the last 14 days, it moves it to a folder called Old Stories. And this has actually been great because I have a place where all of my current stuff and recent stuff that I might need to refer to, it's not too many of them, but they're all in there for, from the last couple of weeks. And then if I need to go back, I can go into the Old Stories folder. And... Um, it actually has worked great that like that store, the stories folder in Dropbox is where I look. It's where my stories are. It's where if I, I start on my Mac and I pick up on the, on the iPad and move back. So that's been really nice. And it's been nice having Hazel there as a maintenance thing. Cause usually when I'm in the context of writing, I am not doing file maintenance. I'm not looking in that folder except in very specific contexts. So having uh, Hazel running in the background on that Mac mini, just filing away the old stuff and getting it out of the way has been really nice. And I, I recently have a couple different kinds of items that go in that folder. And so I have two Hazel rules now. And one, one, some of those items get removed faster than others. And that's great too. So that's one thing I wanted to plug. Just um, I, I have... Uh, be, working with Dropbox has become a lot easier on the iPad too. Like the integration of between Dropbox and the Files app and individual apps, it's much more sm- and and shortcuts too. It's much more smooth than it used to be, and that's very helpful as well. What, I know a lot of people. Um, you don't talk about this much, but you are an audio editor with some renown. I mean, you do a lot of audio editing. You talked about Isotope. Are there any other apps that you rely upon on that big fancy iMac Pro to get your audio editing done? Well, my. My audio all-stars on um, Beyond Logic Pro and Isotope. I mean, I'm using Marco Arment's Forecast to do my MP3 encoding. Um, I'm using a, com- a couple of shell scripts and a command line utility that um, are based on stuff that Marco worked on. And the utility is is actually an unreleased bit of software from Marco Arment that is um, all... Uh, this is another plug I wanted to give actually is I have a lot of my audio workflow that is happening in the finder with 
what are now called quick actions, which used to be called services, still are called services in several places, but in other places they're now called quick actions. Um, and I couldn't live without it. It is it is one of my favorite things that the Mac is capable of doing. I am able to write a it, oftentimes it's a chain of Apple Script, Automator blocks, and shell scripting, and bundle it all together in a single quick action uh, item. And I can click on a file. I can I can two finger click on a file in the Finder and choose a command, and magic things happen. And it's all running behind the scenes and there are shell scripts being run and all sorts of other things uh, that I have put together. But in the end, what it means is that I don't have to open the terminal and issue a bunch of commands when I want to do this thing to a file. I can just right click on that file. So I have a I have one of those that uh, I've actually bound to a keyboard shortcut, which takes the MP3 files most people send to me and immediately just turns it into a wave in a wave file in the finder. Like I don't open an app. I don't want to do that. It just does that. Sometimes people send me a movie file dot MOV that has come out of a uh, call recorder, which is a, a, an app. A lot of people use to record their Skype conversations on podcasts. I have a, uh, a script that is just a right click in the finder that saves out, um, track one, of the QuickTime movie to a wave <laughs> because I don't need both tracks because Call Recorder records two tracks, your microphone and whatever is on Skype. I don't need track two. Now, the people who make Call Recorder have a nice utility to let you do that, but I don't want to use that. I just, I have the file. I just can do click, click, and it's done. And similarly, I've got stuff to like sync things up so that they're all automatically synced. I don't have to find where the file starts and where it stops. It's just, it's great. I love it. I love the um, the power of shell scripts and Apple scripts and all that other stuff being able to be hidden behind a menu item because I feel like that's the true spirit of the Mac, that even if you can do all of that uh, kind of scripting or programming in the background, what you want to do is put a nice friendly interface on it so that you don't have to do the techie bits every time you want it to, to run. So that makes me happy. And then Rogue Amoeba stuff is the other thing that really makes me happy in terms of audio on the Mac. And that is Audio Hijack, which is probably my single favorite Mac app. It is it is so powerful and so easy to use. It can do so many different things. Um, I use it to record podcasts. I use it to pull... I use it to transcribe the Apple uh, quarterly analyst briefing call. Um because it has a it has like a TiVo feature in it. Um, there, there's so many things it can do. Uh, it has been indispensable as somebody who does audio on my Mac. And then they also have a, a tool called Loopback, which lets you create virtual inputs and outputs on the Mac, which is ve- also very powerful and adds a whole other level of flexibility because you can kind of route audio in and out of apps arbitrarily. And then they have an app called Farago, which replaces the, my old uh, soundboard app that I used to use, which was from Ambrosia. And Farago is a soundboard app that I can pipe in using Loopback and Audio Hijack and play back um, audio that's pre recorded, and the people on my podcast can hear it which is actually useful um, to be a handful of times a year, but is a, is a, a fun thing too. So uh, thank you to uh, Paul and everybody at Rogue Amoeba because those apps really um, transform what the Mac is capable to do, capable of doing on an audio level. And I'm just waiting for the day that Jason does a masterclass on all this. <laughs> One day, David, you and I will talk about me doing the podcasting course sometimes so much somewhere. knowledge man so much knowledge it's it's uh hard earned over i i i'll say this 
I feel as if I have seen every, this is going to bite me, I know, every conceivable way that a podcast can fail because it's all happened to me. <laughs> um, and, Why do you uh, say that now on this podcast? Stop. <laughs> uh, because I have solutions, Katie. I have solutions for all of it. If if this podcast fails, I can fix it. Also, you're out of here. so You're, you're going to fix it's it fine. if this particular one fails. I promise I will fix it. I'm recording this in like multiple places at once just in case because I've seen it fail before. Anyway, that that though many, 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 many recording failures over eight plus years of doing podcasting is why I've learned how to do stuff with podcasting. It's because, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. You, you're like, how, how can I fix my broken podcast? And then you learn. Okay. Last question. Well, the show's coming out just a couple days before Christmas. What's the best Doctor Who Christmas special? I used to say the uh, Christmas Carol, which is very good with Michael Gambon, um, and Matt Smith, that's really good. But I think I'm going to say it's the uh, last Christmas episode with Peter Capaldi, and that is the one where Doctor Who meets Santa Claus. And there's an extended part that is like the thing. So if you want an alien horror movie in your Christmas special, uh, that's the one. I really like it. I think it's really good. And Santa is there. Santa is finally Doctor Who has met his match. It's Santa Claus. The, the Christmas Carol one turns me to a puddle of goo every time. I got to go with that one. It's so good. I mean, there, there's there's stuff that I don't like that is super arbitrary, but it, it's such so beautifully done. It is, yes, it is goo. It will turn everybody into a, a puddle of goo if they watch it because your, your heart will melt. For sure. Katie, you got a favorite Christmas special? Doesn't have to be Doctor Who. Die Hard. There you go. There you go. <laughs> sure. That's that's a good one. I was gonna say Peanuts, but Die Hard is excellent too. <laughs> too. I watch Die Hard every year at Christmas. Yeah, and Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street is is uh, my wife's favorite Christmas movie and I love it too. So that put that on the agenda. And you know, there's that that um that little bit of the score from The Wrath of Khan in Die Hard. Or did it go the other way around? But I'm pretty sure it came from the Wrath of Khan in Die Hard. Look it up, it's a thing. Did James Horner do the music for Die Hard? Because James <laughs> James Horner reused all of his scores. There, I was watching some other movie, and I was like, "Oh, now it's Star Trek 2. <laughs> okay, go with what works, baby. All right, um, Jason Snell, thank you so much for coming. Uh, long overdue, and lots of new information and, and help from you today. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, where do folks find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Snell. You can find my writing. It's all linked to from sixcolors.com. And my podcasts are at theincomparable.com and on relay.fm. We are the Mac Power users. Uh, once again, this is episode 462. So you can find it over at relay.fm slash MPU slash 462. And thank you to our sponsors, Smile, Luno, One Password, and Omni Group. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>